So for many weeks, we've been looking to the Scriptures, asking the question, what is the church? What is the church according to Scripture? What does it look like? What are the people like? And again, and again, I've said it's not a building. It's a people. And God has been calling a people to Himself and winning them to faith in Christ and then using them to minister in the earth. And I've told you that the book of Acts, written by Luke, really is a continuation of Jesus' own ministry. In the Gospels, we read of Jesus' ministry on earth. And in the book of Acts, we learn of Jesus' ministry on earth from heaven, where He has ascended and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so reading the book of Acts and preaching through the book of Acts, I hope it will be exhilarating for you as you see that God is at work. God is at work through this Jesus that the Gospels have told us about. And this morning is a special morning as last week we heard about Pentecost, that the promised gift of the Holy Spirit has now come, and that He would make the witness of the apostles have great effect in the world. And not just these early apostles, but He would make the ministry of the church and even this church have effect in the world. And so this morning we are going to look at the first sermon at Pentecost or immediately after Pentecost where the Lord speaks through Peter. And there's much to learn here, more than I can say. We will probably revisit this text again. But give your attention to Peter's sermon and what we're given in the record of it. It is a long text. Okay? Brace yourselves for a long text. But what am I supposed to do? Cut out some of Peter's sermon? I can't cut out some of Peter's sermon. It's given to us. You need to hear it. And if you get lost in the middle of it, well, God is at work. This was His Word. And you'll see the response that this long sermon had on the crowd. Give your attention to Acts chapter, 14, verse, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. That is, Pentecost and the Spirit and the speaking of language that they just witnessed. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, 
wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with the joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children. And for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Hey, that's a long sermon. Not as long as the one you're about to hear. <laughs> Let's pray for God's help to understand His Word. Lord, You cut them to the heart those many years ago. Would You cut us to the heart and our children? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you may know by now 
that I've been here for just over a year. And during this year, I continued to serve with Reformed University Fellowship as a campus minister to the students at Erskine College. And that is, that is essentially over. We had our last large group last Sunday. I have a beach retreat with them, uh, which will be the grand finale coming up. But I say that because for 18, 19 years, I've worked with college students. And in that time... I have been a part of a lot of relationships between students, boys and girls, romantic relationships. I've been a part of a lot of weddings, which is a great joy. I love, I love weddings. And so I have had the perspective of seeing a man and his future wife come together. And I want to mention this as I get into our sermon, because more times than not, it is a process, right? It is a process of two people coming together. And you might say that some men are better at wooing the heart of a woman than others. Every man tries and sometimes they succeed. So, from your own experience, for those of you who are married, you should be able to recall how you sought to woo the heart, the attention, the affection, the interest of a woman, or at least just to try to get her to acknowledge your existence, right? Now, I know some of you men are thinking, well, actually, she wooed me, right? There is a process of trying to win the attention, win the affection, you might say win the heart of another. And it is true, I do love that word woo. Some have commented to me about it already this week. It is an archaic word. We don't use it very often. But it is a word that means to win the heart, to win the interest and the affection of another person. And there's a lot of process by which we do this humanly. The romantic wooing of a heart teaches us lessons about the salvific wooing of the heart. So you and I understand romantically a process by which we try to show and win the affection of another. Well, God the Holy Spirit is in the business of wooing hearts as well. And that's what we see happening here in the passage. We, we have the salvific, the saving, wooing of sinful, hardened, rebellious hearts. And so that really is the sum of this first sermon from Peter. And it's what I want to emphasize. It's the power of preaching. It's the ability for a sinful heart to be cut open. That's the language that Peter uses to be cut open, to get through the callousness of a hard heart and to get to the soft center. So I have three points for us this morning as we talk about the power of preaching. And they are simply these. It's the power to preach. It's the power to persuade. And the power to persevere. And all three of those you're going to see come from the Holy Spirit. Those are the work of the Holy Spirit. The minister is but an instrument. 
And God can choose to or choose not to work through a preacher. But let's see what he did here in this first sermon at Pentecost and see how it might show us the power of preaching. So the power to preach. Peter's first sermon. Uh, by the way, he had, I think, three references to the Old Testament. He's modeling something for us there. The Old Testament informs our understanding of the Christ. It's our understanding of the New Testament. So if you consider yourself a New Testament Christian and you're disinterested in the Old Testament, that's a problem with Peter. That's a problem with what we understand about the Scriptures themselves. They go together telling us one story about one Savior. And so Peter is unashamed. He references the Old Testament and he starts connecting the dots for these people. This is what was said would be true of the Messiah, and this is what is true of Jesus. And he connected those dots. Now, we've got to have a word here about Peter. Because we hear Peter, and we think any number of things, depending on your history and awareness of Peter. But let me remind you what has gone on with Peter just weeks before this sermon. Listen to this. This is Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 to 75. This is Peter. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. She said, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied it again, this time with an oath. I don't know the man. And after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken, that before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And Peter went outside and he wept bitterly. And so my question is, we've just heard Peter's first sermon... In Acts chapter 2, what's gotten into Peter? Weeks ago, he would cower to a servant girl or servant girls who had no authority, who had no voice in court. They were the weakest of the weak. And he's cowering to servant girls, denying that he even knows who Jesus is. And now in Acts chapter 2, Peter is standing boldly and courageously before many adults. And he is preaching without wincing. He is preaching with power. What's gotten into Peter? What's the difference? Two things. In the early part of Acts chapter 1, in verse 3, there's a little summary statement that says that Jesus, prior to His ascension, spent 40 days teaching His disciples about the kingdom of God. Jesus has had Sunday school, small group, for 40 days with His disciples, 
and he's teaching Old Testament and recent events, connecting the dots, showing them how the Messiah was to suffer, die, be resurrected, and then ascend into heaven and have a ministry through the church. So what's gotten into Peter? A whole lot of good teaching. But more than that, it's what was promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, I'm sending the gift of the Holy Spirit so that you may be my witnesses, so that you may have power. And this timid and fearful Peter is now bold and courageous because of Pentecost, because of the work of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit now has empowered him, Jesus has informed him, but you know knowledge is not enough, right? It's not enough to know things. It's the Spirit of God who quickens, who makes us alive, who empowers us to do spiritual things. And it's not only true then, it's true now. It's not enough to just know things. It's not enough to know Bible trivia, to have Bible answers. You've got to be quickened by the Holy Spirit. That's what we learn from this. The Spirit of God has to cut your heart and soften your stubbornness and your sinfulness. The Spirit of God has to woo you. It has to win you. And it always does it through cutting, is what Peter says, through opening up, through coming in, and bringing life into a sinful and dead and stubborn heart. So the power to preach by the Spirit of God alone. Now listen, you can go to seminary, you can take preaching classes, and for a whole lot of money, you can learn how to alliterate your points, right? Make them all start with the same letter. I did it today, right? That doesn't win a heart. That doesn't soften a heart. It may make it a little bit easier to remember the points at lunchtime, and that's helpful, right? Um, you can learn all kind of tricks of the trade for public communication, you know, button your coat when you're standing before a crowd. I did that too. My homiletics professor would be so proud. I remembered to do it this week. I usually forget. That doesn't soften a heart. That doesn't make a good sermon. It doesn't make a faithful sermon. The Spirit of God alone takes the truth of the gospel, the truth of the resurrection, and where He's pleased to work... He softens hearts and He woos and wins sinners to Himself. What we see here in Acts chapter 2 in Peter's sermon is nothing less than Jesus' ministry on earth from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. He said He was going to do it and now He's doing it. And, and timid, scared for his life, Peter suddenly is bold and courageous and looking at people in the eye and... Bring on the consequences, he would say. What's gotten into Peter? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. Peter's first sermon models several things for us. Here's the quick summary of it. You want to know what Peter's sermon has? Verse 22, 23, 24, verse 32, verse 36. This is the sum of it right here. He says, Jesus was proven to you by miracles, signs, and wonders. He is the promised Messiah, and you know it because He came to your towns. He healed the sick. He did miracles. 
You all know it or heard about it. You either saw it or you heard about it from credible witnesses. And that's true. That was true for them. Then he says, sinful men unjustly crucified this Messiah. And that was true. And then he turns the screws and he says, and you did it as well. You participated in it. I think it was Martin Luther who said of himself and of all Christians, he said, we walk around with the nails of the crucifixion in our own pockets. Which is to say, we would crucify Him too. We would do the same. We're no different. We're no better. We, we walk around with the, the nails in our own pockets ready to crucify. And that's what Peter says to them. And you're guilty too. Humanity is sinful and rebellious as are you as am I. And then he says this, but God raised this man, this Jesus, from the dead. He resurrected him to newness of life. And then fourthly, he says, now what are you going to do with that truth? What are you going to do with that fact that a man rose from the dead and that he is the Messiah? That's the summary of Peter's first sermon right there. A brief summary of it. Now, what we have is the power to persuade. Jesus is now standing before these men, these women, these crowds, and He has a power to persuade. And I've already told you, that's the cutting to the heart that is the work of the Spirit of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a part of our founding theology as a church, what we hold to, it says this as it relates to the subject. How is the Word of God made effectual to salvation? That is to say, how is it that the Bible can change people? Is it just the words? And the Shorter Catechism, question 89, if you want to look at it later, says this, The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners, of building them up in holiness and in comfort through faith until their salvation. So our, our theological standards are true to the Scriptures in that they say it's not the mere power of words, it's not arguing or making a case that wins people. It's the Spirit of God wooing and winning sinful hearts, convincing, persuading, convicting people of their sin. Now, let me ask you in the way of application, do you have a memory of somehow God using a speaker to cut your heart open where you heard the gospel maybe a thousand times before, but but suddenly, it was real. It came to life for you. You saw it not just as information, but as truth. You see, that's the work of the Spirit of God. That's how the Spirit convicts of sin and converts sinners. How He woos and wins by convincing people of the bad news and winning them with the good news. Do you have your own history with that?
Or do you feel like a spectator to it? Well, these other people are excited about the Bible. They're excited about the Lord. I'm okay with it. You know, the picnic lunches are okay. The events are fine. But I just, I'm just not, my heart's just not there. Is, is that where you are? Peter would press on every one of us. Have you been cut to the heart that you know that this man, Jesus, is your only hope to not be found in your sin and condemned as guilty? You see, when you understand that there is penalty for sin and that you, as Peter said, are guilty, now you're hungry to hear good news. What can deal with my sin problem? How can mercy be shown to me? And that's what Peter is standing up saying to the crowds. And he's saying it boldly and with great confidence. Because Jesus taught him for 40 days that it was true and the Spirit is in him, calling him to call others. The Spirit of God persuades. The Spirit of God wins. And what happens here with the Spirit of God in this display? At the end of the passage it says, and some 3,000 people believed. Some 3,000 people were baptized because of that belief. Oh, okay, so now here comes baptism. We saw the example of baptism in a local church this morning, uh, both by profession of faith and, and what we call covenant children, the children of believers. And that's what you see Peter saying here at work. He said, look, if you believe in this resurrected Jesus... You need to be associated with Him. You need to identify with Him as a disciple. And baptism was that physical way of identifying with a Savior, identifying with the Lord, that I'm with Him. Mark me with water. Designate me as, as one who follows Him and trusts Him. And so 3,000 people said, I'm in. I believe I saw Him do miracles in town. I heard of Him. I've heard that He's been resurrected. There are many witnesses to His resurrection. There are many convincing proofs that it's real. And 3,000 say that they're in. And this is the birth of the local church. This is the birth of, of the church on earth as the Holy Spirit, in this instance, gives a remarkable demonstration. So if that sermon convinced 3,000 people to believe... Why don't we just stand up and read that same sermon every day, everywhere, all the time? Because it's not a magic formula. It's the Spirit of God wooing and winning however and whomever He chooses. Do you see that mystery? Do you see that wonder? How is it that people can hear the same sermon, the same words, and one respond in faith, and the other see their heart clench like a fist and never want to come back to the church again. The difference is the Spirit of God. He woos and wins whoever He wishes, however He wishes. And it's a mystery. It's a wonder. It's how God has always worked in the earth, Old Testament and New, calling a people to Himself, and He continues to do that to this day. And to our children, He says He has a special warmth that we're not to regard our children as disconnected from us, but our whole household He regards. We're to love and to rear them in the Lord and to pray 
that the Spirit will work in them, that they would walk with the Lord all the days of their life. But the ultimate conclusion to that is the Spirit of God. He will work wherever and however and in whomever He wishes. It's the power of God to persuade, to convert, even to transform, to change people from the inside out. And that's what we see happening here with all these people. There's something new in them. A desire to walk in obedience. To, to change the way that they live. To honor the one that they call the Lord. And that word we see as repentance. That God says, repent and be baptized. Walk in newness of life. And if you're to be baptized, you're to be a, living a life of repentance. That, by the way, is why in the questions that we asked our new members, it says, do you commit yourself to studying and pursuing the peace of the church, representing the work of the church and supporting its ministry? We're all to be walking in newness of life. Who we are at work, who we are at the gym, who we are at Walmart, wherever we are, we're to aspire to walk in this kind of newness of life, repentance, and obedience. That's what the church is supposed to look like in the world. But the problem is, too many of us, we just don't regard the Spirit and the Word as having that kind of power. You know, what we need is a program. We need a big splash program that'll just get people in the doors. That's how we tend to think. Um, if we got enough pizza, if we got enough, you know, get a slushy machine and we could blow the roof off in ministry, right? R.C. Sproul has a very helpful quote here. I think he's exactly right in what he says. He says, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests His power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, in a methodology, in a technique, in anything and everything but that in which God has placed it, His Word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity, and that power is focused on the Scriptures. It's like our theological standard said, it's Word and Spirit working together. That when the Word and the Spirit work together, hearts are softened, Lives are changed. That's how it's always been. That's how it will always be. Now thirdly and finally, the Holy Spirit gives power to persevere. And only the Holy Spirit can give power to persevere. I'm talking about real staying power. Power to stick to your faith when crisis comes. Power to be true to your faith when pleasure and opportunity to do it on your own comes. Real staying power through the ups and the downs of everyday life that are yet to come. A staying power that sees His people hold fast to the very end, to the finish line. It's the Spirit of God alone that does that. Now, those of you who are thinking ahead are like, well, wait a minute. Judas didn't show staying power. Judas didn't finish well. 
And that's absolutely correct. The Spirit of God works where He will, how He wills, in whoever He wishes. And that is a great mystery of the Bible. That some will persevere and some will not. But the author of perseverance is always the Spirit of God working by and with the Word in our hearts. Such perseverance is not of us. It is God the Holy Spirit at work in us. So what can we do? Is it just fatalism? Well, if He works in me, He works in me. If He doesn't, He doesn't. Well, what can you do? Well, you can do what God has told us all to do. To draw near Him and to draw near His Word and to draw near His people. If you want to grow... If you want to inflame the Spirit in your hearts, God has said, be with His people, be near His Word, and watch Him work. Now, who are those that will want to draw near His people and want to draw near His Word? Those whom the Spirit is at work. So as we consider this as a church family, there's some very practical application that I want you to to consider. Because, you know, we do do things intentionally around here. When we sing, there really is a conscious effort to make sure we're singing biblical, faithful, truthful words of Scripture, the teachings of Scripture. And when we preach, as we've always preached in this church, you know that we're preaching from Scripture. We're preaching from the Bible. And when our youth gather, when our women gather, when our men gather, When Sunday school gathers, when the children gather, when the teenagers gather, we're to be a people who are gathering around the Word and the truths of the Word because it's by the Word of God that the Spirit will grow us, that He will woo and win hearts that are seeking to wander, that He will woo and win hearts that are stubborn and hardened. But the power to persevere always comes from the Spirit of God. The call upon us as a church is to make sure the Word is present and we trust God and the Holy Spirit to do its own unique, special, and mysterious work. And all we can do is pray and ask that God would be at work through His Word. Through us, through the missionaries we support, through the campus ministries we support, We want the Word to show up everywhere it is and the Spirit of God to bring it to life to quicken dead and sinful hearts. I told you before a few weeks ago, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, has a motto that summarizes succinctly what we aspire to see true of us. And it's a good little motto. It says this, We aspire to be faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, obedient to the Great Commission of Jesus Christ. And in all three of those particular items, there's one central truth. And that is, we believe that the Scriptures, the Spirit of God, define what ministry is and how ministry can be effective to sinners, to sinful hearts, our own, and others. That's the recipe in Acts chapter 2. Say what the Bible says and pray that the Spirit will woo and win 
sinful hearts. And 3,000 people had a finger pointed at them that you are sinners, you put the Messiah to death, judgment will come for you, what will you do with this Messiah? And 3,000 people touched by the Word of God and the Spirit of God responded by faith and said, I'll be baptized because I believe everything that's been said about the Messiah in the Scriptures. So how will you respond? How have you respond, responded? And how will you continue to respond? Jesus has been put before us. And this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. He's present before us in body, in blood, in the form of juice and cracker. And by faith, we're called to come and to partake, to acknowledge our sin, which we've already confessed in this service, and to believe in the assurance of pardon that comes from His perfect life, from trusting in Him. But as we come to the table, we're going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to make use of the Apostles' Creed. And we use the Apostles' Creed in this church, but... Normally, it would be earlier in the service as a profession of our faith. But we're going to do it before we come to the table. And I want to underscore a few things for our understanding. First, I want you to know this. This Apostles' Creed, probably from the 2nd century, it's called the Apostles' Creed because it essentially captures the basic preaching components of the Apostles' ministry. Some of the very same elements you just heard in Peter's sermon. The basic building blocks to communicate biblical history and the gospel itself. That's the content of the Apostles' Creed. And it's through a profession of faith in those truths that we come to the table. That we access the table. So what we're going to do this morning, I'm going to close our sermon in prayer. And then we're going to stand and we're going to recite the creed, the Apostles' Creed, as we normally would. And then we're going to come to the table. And there will be special music, and it's during that special music. Feel free to come up. There are cups of two here. No, cups of four here. Cups of, for two, bags for two here. So go to whatever table that you need. And we're going to come to the table by profession of faith in the Apostles' Creed. So let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we do acknowledge the beauty and wonder of Your Word and Your Spirit. That when You were pleased to soften a stubborn and sinful heart, nothing can keep it from being softened. And we give You thanks for the many hearts in this room that have been wooed and won. But we pray for any that are still stiff and stubborn, any that are clenched like a fist, that even through what's been heard in Acts chapter 2, you might woo and win. And if not for us, then for others who are not here, that you would use us as voices of biblical truth, as good neighbors, good family members, to woo and win them by the power of the Holy Spirit that we might see more and more come to the table by faith to eat, to drink, to celebrate the forgiveness of our sins. And so we ask this and we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.